Welcome to this podcast from the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice at McKinsey & Company. I'm Dennis Swinford, podcast editor. The buzz in the world of mergers and acquisitions these days is often around so-called digital M&A, but it's not clear that everyone uses the term to mean the same thing or even that they realize how it differs from garden-variety deal-making. In this podcast, McKinsey's Werner Rem checks in with Robert Euliner, who's worked on digital deals, to sort it out. We'll hear first from Werner. Robert, we have been talking a lot about digital M&A in the last year, year and a half or so, and part of the reason is that since 2016, we see about 4 or 5% of M&A in, in what we call digital M&A, M&A volume, I guess, and I just feel that there are two different types of this. One is a company buying analytics skills and software to improve how they make their product. And another type where you buy, say, sensor or Internet of Things applications and put them into the products that you make to make the products better and secure for the future. Are those two different yeah, things? It, yeah, I, I think there's actually a third one, because I made the same point uh, <laughs> just this week. And almost everybody added a third piece, which was social and just basically dealing with other means by which um, there's disruptions. Uh, from you know an Uber-like play or social or other types of online marketing or online business models, which is a little different than Internet of Things, where, where you're improving the value proposition of the product. So online business model for traditional companies, right? Because, I mean, typically yeah. what I see is that it's traditional companies trying to do this rather than sort of Microsoft buying yet another software company, right? That feels different. But yeah, that's right, and that's why it's so hard. I, I was reflecting that in the last you know, wave of tech M&A and uh, flurry of activity 15, 20 years ago, it was a lot about industrial clients trying to carve out technology and get a valuation. This time, they're actually trying to really change their business model or operations as opposed to discovering that they had a little bit of software revenue in a hardware company and trying to uh, monetize that. Now it's a lot more around legitimate business building or, or acquiring new capability. And when we talk to these companies, while fundamentally it is still M&A and you know, the traditional sort of process still applies, there's a lot of other things that make this difficult, let's say, for a traditional industrial company. Things like high levels of uncertainty about the you know product what um, and, and the target right low target visibility sometimes you don't even know what exactly you're buying and so what in your mind is different about this than sort of a industrial company buying another small industrial company and plugging onto the product there well fundamentally the biggest difference is it's very hard to do traditional uh well you need to do valuation but an industrial company buying a smaller industrial company will look at a standalone you know, intrinsic valuation, maybe using a DCF. They'll look at cross-sell and cost synergies and will arrive at the value of a company to them and, and be able to set a price. Digital M&A, particularly if it's around a new business model, to your point, there's uncertainty where you're creating potentially a whole new P&L that's been unproven. But even in the case where you're just acquiring capability to improve your production or efficiency, the value of the company is going to be a much different methodology in terms of the value to you versus uh, the perception that your target company will have, which still sees that they're selling stuff into some market. 
so practically, how do I go about this, right? Because a traditional method is, okay, I buy a company, can maybe cut some costs, maybe attach some product, and that gives sort of a DCF if you want value to me, and then I hope that I pay less than that, right? And here, it feels more like you need sort of the business plan first for what you want to be, and then you figure out how how you fill it up. So it's less about a single deal, more about how much you can spend if you want to get the whole business going. Is that the right way to think about this? I would argue that's a discipline that should have always been used, which is figure out the strategy and build an understanding of the valuation and then apply that to various targets to see how well it fits. But in this case, if you don't have that discipline, it's unlikely you'll be able to start a productive conversation internally. I actually think that despite the trend that's increasing digital M&A that we're seeing, I think that there's a much larger number of companies actually looking at digital deals and struggling to figure out how to justify them. I think the valuation in particular is a real barrier to actually a go-no-go decision because it's, it does require discipline around an operating plan uh, and then in turn an integration plan, which is the second challenge these companies have. We're going to come to integration in a second, but I do want to explore a little bit this notion of what changes in how you look at deals. Because a lot of companies that, that I talk to still have the mindset of any deal has to be EPS accretive in two years or maybe operating income accretive. The synergies have to outpace the implementation costs, something along those lines. And it feels like here you're likely to buy something that you actually have to invest in before it becomes something bigger in four or five years. So how do you guide companies in the direction of how to think about the value creation from these deals when they're sort of a little bit stuck in the old way to think about this? Both either a business model or a capability internally, you need to build a P&L and an operating plan to understand what the value at stake is. Then you need to figure out how much capability you're going to actually have to invest in internally versus what the contribution is of buying a company. And at the end of the day, it's, it's really going to be a judgment call as to whether buying capability will re- either reduce the cost or increase the speed by which you can achieve the business objectives that you're trying to drive. The good news is that you know, these aren't large transformational deals. They're, they're smaller deals, and so you, you are really trading this off around internal investment to build capability. Many of these things are expensive. I predict, though, that you're going to have rules of thumb emerge like we saw you know, in tech M&A, software M&A decades ago that were more metrics around things like a million dollars per engineer as opposed to anything that's tied to the target company's P&L or revenue. Particularly when a lot of these things don't have any revenue or profit to speak of. I'd actually argue, just like we saw you know, in software M&A when I was doing a fair bit of this uh, when I was at Microsoft, generally you would see if you have legacy revenues uh, with digital companies, it's more a liability because it's unlikely that you're going to be wanting to continue that business. So that's the other wrinkle, which is things without revenue uh, are probably in many ways more attractive because it's more likely it'll be easier to have it fit into uh, what you want to use the asset for without having to worry about legacy customers. Right. It does feel, though, that that, that kind of conversation in, in the sort of broader context of a strategic plan and a business plan is not something you can just sort of go to your head of business development and say, go find me five companies that sort of have this technology, right? So, so the, it, it feels like a broader investment into finding the right skills, 
finding the right companies and driving the discussion towards the outcome rather than going val- valuing a company and just buying it. Right? It, it feels broader than classic M&A target hunting. Yeah, I mean, I again, I think you need to be very focused on what you're building with a business leader or functional leader really taking that ownership. But again, I'd argue that's best practice, even if it's traditional M&A, that you need to have you know clear strategy and being able to fit it into a business plan. But in this case, it's nearly impossible to execute these given the range of assets that you might be looking at unless you're actually screening them against a real operating plan. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago integration. So I've heard both let's integrate everything and put them in our system and let's keep everything separate um, because it's a mm-hmm. small company and we don't want to put our you know, old traditional company spirit over the young spirit. How do you think about that? What, what have you seen that works? First of all, you want to make sure that you're integrating these acquisitions into one thing as opposed to buying a bunch of things hoping that they'll somehow collaborate. It's unlikely that only one acquisition is going to suffice to drive a digital strategy under any of the different uh, objectives we've talked about. So you are going to be buying multiple companies, and you're going to have to figure out how to structure and organize those companies into a clear operating organization. I think that many of these companies are young and would welcome uh, the benefit of mature processes if they actually are delivered to relieve them as opposed to add more administrative overhead. So traditional finance, recruiting, uh, even operational skills, I think should be selectively integrated to help these companies so they can focus on the innovation. But I I think a lot of mistakes um, when, you know, traditional companies, whether they're industrial or pharma or, you know, travel infrastructure companies buy uh, more, you know, technology-oriented or different cultures in these assets, there is this sense that they need to leave them alone, which almost accelerates or the failure rate. It's almost self-fulfilling. Can you give an example of where this integration worked or didn't work? Well, I think there's traditional examples that I think are true today, which is take the whole payment space where you get an anchor acquisition and then you string together 30, 40 other payments companies throughout the world but it's done systematically to create a unified payments platform. The vision is that you want to create a global platform, and so you bring these assets together. I think that that concept of building a platform and a vision for how you, you string these things together is applicable today in, in terms of what we're seeing in, you know, even in areas like trucking, where companies are putting a lot more sensors into physical Class A trucks, and then providing performance data and as well as uh, predictive maintenance data in order to pool across not only potentially the trucks they sell, but fleets that may have a variety of different manufacturers. And I think that's really the choice point, which is a bunch of decisions around, are you actually going to build a platform? Is it going to be open or closed? Closed being just your products or open to, to basically pool data between you and your partners. I think where failure occurs, we see is where you actually put a toe in. You, From the very beginning, you deal with uncertainty by not only looking for something that's cheap, but on top of that, you may hedge your risk by doing an earnout on the current P&L uh, because you really don't know how else to 
uh, defer payment. And as I said earlier, the likelihood that you're going to be running the business or, the, or using that capability and generating the same P&L uh, once you acquire it is pretty low. And if you put an earnout around it and don't have a plan for integrating it, even if you did get lucky and get what you needed cheap, it's going to be nearly impossible to integrate the thing. Interesting. It does raise a question that I feel we haven't addressed up front, is how do I know what I should buy versus make to use old terms, right? Because some of this feels, you know, some of this doesn't feel t too hard to do yourself when you think about hiring software engineers for Internet of Things and putting sensors mm -hmm. on products, et cetera. And in some, it feels that you could be contractual better off than buying, especially when you have uh, areas that are moving very quickly, technology moves quickly, you need IP that is protected, you know, to a certain extent you don't quite know what you really need in five years and wouldn't you be better off just having a contractual relationship rather than buying some of these companies? What's your opinion yeah, on that? I think How do I know? The simple answer is it's a lot harder to do a joint venture or even a contract because it requires not only this vision of an operating plan, but it, you have to step into a fairly granular definition of what the business requirements are, just like any other procurement. And in this case, Sure, if you can do that and do it even better through an equity investment so you have a stake in the company and uh, can ultimately potentially convert that into an acquisition if things go well, um, I think that's a great strategy. It's just a lot harder. It requires a lot more work up front. So this is kind of classically you kind of get what you pay for uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of work. I, I will say that uh, my guess is for really promising technologies and capabilities, it's going to be really tough to control and shape the IP and the roadmap without having control of the asset ultimately. But I think that to the extent that you can fund specific activity or license certain technology, that's a great option. I will say you still run into the same problem because if you don't internally have capability to manage those projects contractually, it's going to be really tough to make sure you're getting what you want. That makes sense, especially the point about controlling the IP and, and maybe taking away some promising technology from your competitors as well right? by having unique access to something. Yeah. So coming to a close here, Robert, thanks for being on. We, we said earlier this is less than 10% or so of M&A volume right now. What do you think sort of as a bold prediction? Is digital M&A going to be the majority of M&A that industrial companies are doing, or is it always going to be small compared to large deals? I think given that for the most part these will be capability plays, um, they will be small deals. I think that as new and successful business models emerge, you can imagine uh, that you'll begin to see across all sectors much more significant movement to things that we're going to call digital deals. It's going to be hard to score it. You're going to see companies that have embraced and have a mix of the two, given where this trend is going. And my guess is that 20, 30% in 10 years, M&A will have a real material digital component to it at a minimum. But it's going to be tough to sort of isolate digital deals from non-digital deals. That makes a lot of sense. So the, the only thing we do know then is that it's important for everybody to have the skills to look at the digital space, the technologies, the IP, as they do almost any kind of deal. You know what I would say is 10 years from now, it's almost inconceivable that any company in any industry will be able to ignore a digital business model or digital capability to remain competitive. That's the big difference this time. It's not just 
taking advantage of some bubble in software evaluations and hoping to get a piece of that. It's really going to be core to being competitive in five years, let alone 10. So that's a great end. Digital M&A is here to stay. Robert, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. Take care.